Welcome to the Swap Voice Podcast. My name is Brandon Bidet. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are recording in, can I say this? New Orleans, Portland, and Austin? Is that too close to home? I mean... What if I don't say who's where? Oh, okay. Ooh. <laughs> oh, I like this idea. Yeah, I think we've both already said enough to give away who is where. But yeah. you'd have to go back and listen to previous episodes to find out. And then by that point, you'd empathize with us so much that you wouldn't dare swat us. Or you'd dislike us more. I don't know. I also have your two mailing addresses written down. I'm about to read them out uh, on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> Help everyone narrow it down. Oh, yes. Oh, that's great because I've moved. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, um, no, I haven't. Or have I? Um, what I will say is, here's a clue. I had red beans recently. I have red beans like at least twice a month. So I think what we're revealing is that we're all from Louisiana. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I watched Ed Sheeran and Melissa Etheridge at Jazz Fest in the past seven days. Does that help reveal anything? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know Portland had a Jazz Fest. <laughs> it does, actually. Have y'all been watching anything? Uh, so I don't go in, into any more Ed Sheeran content, which I already did on the pod last yeah. week and feel deeply embarrassed about. Please tell me you've been watching some movies. Uh, no. <laughs> Sorry. No. I was visiting my family in an undisclosed location for a week, and I started my younger sister on uh, Golden Girls, though, so that was some really good sister bonding. You really haven't lived until you've, like, had, like, a sister-type moment with someone where you watch Golden Girls, and you, like, laugh, and you sing along to the theme. So that's pretty much what kept me sane that week is uh, watching Golden Girls with my sister. So bless them girls and all they've done for us. Yes, indeed. The closest I can commiserate with that is we watched uh, Steel Magnolias for the last podcast episode and had a oh, great nice. time. Just hanging out with women in the salon, chatting it up. Yeah, you gotta. Although they were all Rue McClanahan because they all have the accent. None of them were uh, a Rose or a Sophia or a Dorothy. Nope. Oops, all Blanche. <laughs> Oops, all Blanche. <laughs> oh, that ties into something I'm going to get into. Oh, yeah, I'm excited. But before I do, I want to go ahead and let you know, I also have been watching uh, television lately, you know, uh, going back and watching old things because I'm, I'm not a scab. Uh, one of them is a Fox, then migrated to Sci-Fi Channel um, anthology series called The Night Visions. I know I talked about the 2002 Twilight Zone uh, when we recorded before. And I think I just love TV anthologies. I'm always fascinated by them. Um, this one is hosted by Henry Rollins. What? I don't know if y'all knew about this. <laughs> what? I know he does like TV stuff. Like he was a, a villain in Legend of Korra, but I didn't know about Yes, this. he was. And I uh, went over to a friend's house recently and they were watching the end of that movie that Sia made. And I saw his name in the credits for that. I don't know what he should be more embarrassed by, though, if it's that or, or Night Visions, because uh, Night Visions is a really... I, I know I said that the 2002 Twilight Zone is a mixed bag. This really feels more like an actual reboot of the Twilight Zone than the Twilight Zone series that was running contemporaneously was, because this one sometimes skews a little more towards horror and one of the other strange things about like the O2 Twilight Zone that I didn't mention before is that it doesn't really seem to have much of like a moral center. Like there are sometimes lessons, but for the most part, they're not like, you know, 
little social justice parables like the original Twilight Zone mostly was, at least when Rod Serling was writing an episode. This one, it feels more like that. The lessons are dumber. Um, they're not as like you're not getting the same sort of moral instruction that you got from Rod Serling. And I should also note, like, you know, when Serling would appear on the original Twilight Zone, he would usually talk for like, I don't know, four or five lines, right? But Henry Rollins basically just does like a single Bond one-liner intro and then like almost like a punchline after each uh, episode. So they're an hour long. Uh, they're comprised of two parts. And it's fascinating because it came out around 0102. And if you watch like the 02 Twilight Zone, there is a lot of Vancouver. There are a lot of familiar Vancouver actor faces that you see. Whereas with this one, there are a lot more people that you would recognize as as real like stars. It is interesting that <laughs> Lou Diamond Phillips was in an episode of each of them. But like there's one that I watched that had Jerry O'Connell and everyone's favorite pink ranger, Amy Jo Johnston. Um, there was an episode that had like Natasha Lyonne. I'll, you know, and I haven't finished it. They're, like I said about Twilight Zone 02, kind of a mixed bag because some of them are not very good quality or the twist is very telegraphed or not very interesting. But it also, sometimes it gets kind of fucked up. Like there's one where Randy Quaid like rises from his own coffin at his funeral and becomes convinced that he had like a post-death experience in heaven and then tries to like murder his daughter so that they can go together. Like it goes to places that the twilight zone and even the outer limits doesn't really, sometimes they're shockingly kind of like violent and creepy and like just wrong. My friends that watched this episode with me did not care for it at all, but I will say my favorite of the ones I've seen so far, I haven't finished it, is one where Bridget Fonda is like probably in one of her last roles because, you know, she retired from acting to have a family and all of that. She's convinced that there's someone in her house or someone moving things around. And so you start to think maybe it's a poltergeist. You know, she tries to call her ex-husband and she tells him about it and he's like, don't contact me. And then the twist is that uh, she's actually <laughs> the person who's hiding in the walls or whatever. That like the she and her husband divorced and they sold the house and she's just been living there without the actual current occupant knowing. So they've both been calling the police. Anyway, I thought that was a lot of fun and I wanted to go ahead and recommend Night Visions if anyone's interested. I would recommend it over the O2 Twilight Zone, although really the ideal is just to figure out which are the top rated of each one and just watch those. As long as you watch the Twilight Zone O2 episode with Jessica Simpson as the babysitter with the dolls. <laughs> I saw two movies that I have done coverage for, so I'll discuss them briefly. Vibes was already posted. It's a movie from 1988 starring Cindy Lauper and Jeff Goldblum as psychics who are recruited by Peter Falk to find his missing son in the mountains. So many of my boxes are being checked right now. Right? Um, it was savaged by uh, critics of the time. I was watching it with my best friend and she was like, oh, you know, I, I told her beforehand that critics didn't like this movie at the time and I only knew about it because it was mentioned and not reviewed well by both Gene and Roger. And in an episode of Siskel and Ebert, the movies that I watched on YouTube, 
it's so much fun. Uh, there is, it does kind of slog towards the end, but I don't think that that's really what the um, contemporary critics didn't like about it. I think that they were kind of gunning for Cindy Lauper. Like they kind of thought that she was a joke. Um, whereas I think that she's actually very charming and like approachable and fun in this one. Like I, I really enjoyed it uh, again. The last 20 minutes there's a bunch of non-action scenes that really feel repetitive and endless, but it's still only like 80-something minutes, and I would give it a big recommend. And then I also saw Bo is Afraid. And I know you saw it, Brandon. Yeah, I liked it, but I think, you know, I haven't quite posted your review yet. By the time this episode's out, it should be up. Um, right. I think you liked it more than I did. You know, I almost texted you on my way home from the theater to be like, we've got another mother on our hands. Because infamously, <laughs> I had wrote a negative review of Mother and then put it on my uh, top list for that year. Because, you know, it was a movie that I watched it. And as I was leaving the theater, I loved it. And by the time I got to the car, I had turned on it. Like, that was a <laughs> that was a very strange experience for me. This one has, uh, you know, in, in your... I did not read your piece on it until after I finished my review because I didn't want to be influenced. But I did read that you made a comparison to uh, one of the Kaufman films. Oh, I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah, but really all Charlie Kaufman movies apply. That's sort of like journey into the mind. I just don't want to list a bunch of Charlie Kaufman movies. <laughs> yes. No, and I, I completely agree because as I was watching it, it really felt like a Kaufman like script almost like because the film is just about a series of really horrible things happening to a man as he tries to get to his mother's house for reasons that will leave open to interpretation I am curious how you felt about the ending um how I'll put it is that the most interesting aspects of the movie to me are the macro view of the world that Bo is navigating and not so much the insular Charlie Kaufman style of writing. So like all of the mm. stuff that's representative of what's going on inside his mind, like, you know, all the anxiety and issues with his mother did not compel me as much as like the literalization of that stuff outside of his head. So like the way that he interprets the world in this like grotesque display really hit me like comedically as like the most uncharitable view of like modern life in America possible. So like the I ugly agree. urban landscapes and then like the fucking self-absorbed losers in the woods. And then um, the suburbanite like security freaks who like want to basically lock everyone else outside of their gates. Um, and even like the stuff at the end with his mom, where she's kind of locked off in this, you know, ultra rich compound uh, where she's trying to orchestrate the world from her bunker. All of that, I think, is like a very interesting, grotesque caricature of modern life and very funny. And just like how ugly and mean it is about everyone possible. But uh, once it gets into really delving into the core, I guess, metaphors of like what all that's supposed to be in service of, I, I don't find that as interesting, which I, I don't really like that style of Kaufman writing anyway. Like, I didn't like I'm thinking of any things. I, I fucking hate Synected in New York, which this has a lot of overlap with as well. So I don't know. That that part was really wasn't for me. Well, Brandon, I'm I'm going to surprise you right now. I also, uh, I agree completely. Um, oh, 
All right, there you go. <laughs> I, I definitely got into some of the like metaphorical stuff with the water. Like I really talked about that a lot in my review because I did find that like a fascinating part of the movie. Like when it's present, when it's absent, as it ebbs and flows and the way that like water is omnipresent throughout the film and how it like affects like the narrative. But I, I, I have another big surprise for you. This movie, um, it kind of does that thing I like and I hate it. I guess it does. There's certain stuff that is like untethered to reality in a way that cannot be fixed. Yes. yes. So I don't, I mean, this movie is still in theaters and Allie, I assume you have not seen it. No, I haven't seen it. So I don't want to get too into it or too spoilery about like the ending exactly. Although this is one of those movies that are like, what is a spoiler? Right. Cause it's, it's all metaphorical. I also hate, hate synecdoche new york i hate that oh, movie so much that film. yeah and, <laughs> I agree. and this this movie almost feels like the way to make that movie but good i actually was thinking that while watching it because even though i hate synecdoche new york there are two images from it that i think about all the time there's the woman whose house is perpetually on fire and there's the scene where the character dies and like the tattoos of the leaves just sort of like dry up and blow away. I think that those are two like very striking, beautiful, fascinating images that are like stranded in this like really, really masturbatory and pretentious movie. Whereas this one, as I was watching it, I was like, oh, I can see that people are really going to hate this. Like this movie is very pretentious in some of the things that it's doing, like this water absence abundance waves upon waves thing that i'm picking up on like the density of what's going on here a lot of people are going to watch this they're going to be like this movie is so pretentious it's boring it's dumb i better not hear any fucking clapping you know <laughs> i also wrote about that uh, reaction <laughs> i did i i uh i had it in my a, a reference to it in my review and then i read yours and i was like oh, i gotta take that out i don't want to oh, repeat it that much but <laughs> You know, I thought it was great. I think it might be, it's competing with Megan for the thing I saw that I liked the most so far this year. I appreciate that they're both comedies, like first and foremost. Like you could talk about the metaphors and the possible pretension all day, but it's also a movie that's like overloaded with jokes. How, in your screening, were there people laughing? See, I went um, by myself, but I ran into a friend and we watched it next to each other. And we were kind of like, you know, snickering or going like, Jesus Christ, like about how over the top it was. But there were these two guys in the front row who were like performatively laughing at everything. <laughs> like it was like the funniest thing in the world. Like the movie was like made for them, but they needed mm -hmm. us to know that they found it very funny. Uh, yeah. I had a couple of 824 bros in my midst, you know, I went with a weird crowd. You know, I, I had tickets to see this with a friend that I then had to be like, look, man, I'm sorry, because we talked about this off mic, but my cat has been sick. And I was like, I can't leave him. I need to be monitoring him. I can't leave the house for to go see a three hour movie while my cat right. is as sick as he is. So then I eventually had to watch it. You know, I went and saw it by myself yesterday morning, which uh, I guess we've already revealed what cities we're in. So we record these normally on Sunday, more, uh, Sunday evenings, but we're recording on a Monday evening. So I went on a, a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Um, so there weren't any, uh, anybody who goes to church was not going to be there, but also, um, there were people, uh, there was only front row seating still available. So everyone was behind me. 
I'm like really pushed all the way up into this movie's asshole, basically being that that <laughs> on that front row. And I could hear like it was a very small, like four row theater. Like it, it wasn't in one of the it was in a multiplex, but it was in one of their smaller rooms where they do movies like this. And I don't know, there were people laughing earlier on and then they just did not I did not hear them laughing later on in the movie. And even though I found it very funny, I was having that experience where, you know how sometimes when you watch something that's funny alone, you just don't laugh? Right. Like right. laughing is sort of like a, a social thing that humans do. So it's not and, – and it's weird because the A24 bros that you're talking about, they're on that same spectrum in a lot of ways, right? Like they're they're laughing socially but like n- not really. Whereas like sometimes you you don't laugh even though you think something's funny and that's – that's because it's not you're not in a social environment. I didn't feel like I was. So anyway, that's a long rambly way of saying like I didn't I found this movie very funny, but I didn't laugh at all. And I worry that my lack of laughter might have ruined other people's time. I mean, to that crowd's credit though, the urban and suburban segments that open the film are funnier than the back half. Am I yeah. opinion? I, I don't think that there's much that's very funny that happens during his like long imaginary vision while he's having this like uh, Stendhal syndrome experience watching this play. You know, that was my least favorite part. Really? Because I was like, I've already seen the Bjork video that Michelle Gondry directed for Bachelorette 3000 times in my life. I already get this. And that was only three minutes, not 20 minutes. So, you know, I I still loved it because one of the things that I really enjoyed, and this is both like comic and tragic, is that it constantly makes it seem like things are going to get better for Bo. Like every once in a while, like it, it is sort of a series of vignettes where you have these like hopeful spots and then that gets destroyed and taken away. And like even in this play and this imagination that has it gets almost all the way up to and they lived happily ever after. But even that comes crashing down in this flood. So, yeah, I appreciated its metaphor. I found it very funny. I found it. It it reminded me a lot of things that I do enjoy, like the non synecdoche (laughs) Kaufman movies, Uh, the Congress. It had a little bit of that going on in it. And yeah, I talked about in my review how it reminded me of the uh, Maria and Daye novel that is translated into English as My Heart Hemmed In. But I've talked enough about Bo is Afraid. I wanted to like hear some more of your thoughts on it now that I had seen it. But I think we've reached the limit of what we can get away with without kind of maybe not making the, enjoy- the experience as enjoyable for listeners. I do want to say one more thing about it, though, if you don't mind me interjecting. Please. I could talk for another hour. I just don't want to like make everybody miserable. It's full of stuff you could talk about, but I want to, I want to talk about just like Ari Aster for a second. I don't think he was fully ready to make this movie and it feels very desperate to me. Like he knows that the iron's hot right now and he has to make his big grand statement as an artist. Now that he's made some money with a couple like trolley horror movies. And it's like, here's his major troll. It's his big provocative piece where he makes a grand statement about life inside and outside of his head. And it's like, you're only three features deep into your career. I think it's really ungenerous to this new crop of filmmakers that are hitting it big with Bloomhouse and A24 and Neon, people in their like 20s and 30s who only have like two or three pictures 
and everything they make is being scrutinized down to like the smallest detail. So like the disappointment over Jordan Peele's Nope or even us because they're like a little messier and not as like narratively tight as Get Out was when it's like that is a young filmmaker still figuring out their craft and like trying new things. They don't need to make this like grand Kubrickian masterpiece right out the gate and you have to give them time to like develop their voice. It is the curse of freshman success. It's the sophomore slump at, you know, the second album problem. They're not getting that slack to try things and fail, though. They're like, it's all make or break. We have to make these big grand statements every time out. And I, I think that's just very ungenerous and like not good. Like the the thing I wrote was about watching that and watching Rope on the same day. And that was like dozens of films in a Hitchcock's career and also showy in a way, but like not as desperate to like capture everything before he lost the chance to make another movie again, which is what Bo is afraid felt like to me. I, I agree with you almost fully. The only thing that I would say is that like, I, I'm not being like, I'm going to play devil's advocate. They should almost fail. Like that's not <laughs> what I'm trying to say here. I will say that, you know, contemporary directors are, interacting with a larger body of text than Hitchcock was. Sure. I don't know if you've ever tried to watch any of Hitchcock's really old stuff or like even his silent pictures. Many of them are very workmanlike and not very engaging. They're as engaging as they can be because like he is a master, but like, you know, they really were only figuring film out like a little bit at that point. And it to, you know, now it's been almost 70 years since then. And so there's a much larger like volume of like, what is film? What constitutes film? What should film be? You know, Hitchcock could make a movie every eight months because they only had to be 60 minutes long. And there were only like eight cuts in them because they were basically just filming stage plays at that point. So the learning curve is a lot steeper. And I agree with you completely on that. And especially in the sense that, like, we have a much more entitled public now, because the public also has this, like, decades and uh, basically a century, over a century at this point, of interacting with the text of, like, what are movies? What is film? So that they're more demanding. And I don't think that they're more demanding in a healthy or good way most of the time. I guess I'm getting to the public reaction part more than the industry part. Like, I don't want to argue for the studio system where Hitchcock had to turn out six pictures a year and basically placate the executives and, you know, sneak his creative voice in where he could. I'm glad that studios like a 24 will fund an Ari Aster project, no matter what he wants to make. But what I'm arguing for is for the audience to not have everything have to be either the greatest movie ever made or the worst abomination that, you know, the executives at A24 have to answer for and nobody in the theater better fucking clap. Like the the yeah. binary of great or shit is disencouraging for artists to like try new things or to like play around with tools and ideas that later could be developed into an epic scope film like Bo is Afraid. And I feel like if he had made this movie like six or seven pictures down the line, it might have been something really extraordinary instead of something that's messy uh, but has like great moments and who knows, maybe he still will make that picture one day and it'll be similar to this, but improved. Um, I, I can't tell the future. It's just like 
really disheartening listening to people like either call it like one of the greatest works of art of all time or, you know, an abomination and uh, something that people need to answer for. I, fi- I find the lack of room between those two points very upsetting because <laughs> my reaction was basically like positive but not ecstatic, you know? Right. And I I will say that mine was more positive, but I'm with you because uh, to an extent, I think maybe this was already a problem and we just didn't know it. And I'm going to circle back to vibes real quick. That's not a movie that should have a 13% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which again is not like a perfect, it's not a good metric even, but it does tell you like how many critics at the time were just willing to be like, oh, this movie is bad, even though it's perfectly acceptable. They had to make it like a 13% or movie with their negative reviews, even though it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not nearly as bad as that reputation would suggest. Yeah. Uh, what I kept thinking about when you're talking about these directors and these like third pictures and the expectations of it, I keep thinking about Richard Kelly. Yeah. That expectation like crushed him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I wasn't thinking about Southland tales while watching <laughs> Uh, Bo is afraid, but they are very similar in just how far they're willing to go and how outlandish they're willing to be and how they're willing to even do like a couple of bits of like really like potty humor at its worst um, or its best, depending on how you feel. But yeah, we w- I wish Richard Kelly made more movies and I hope I certainly hope that like Jordan Peele and um, Ari Oster aren't like crushed under the weight of this expectation. Yep. I don't want to belabor too long. I know we've been talking a while and I, I can't wait to talk about Cynthia Rothrock and how much I love her. So I'll just say <laughs> the only other thing I've watched since we spoke last is a movie from 2000 entitled Gossip. Picture it. 2000. <laughs> James Marsden, Lena Headey, and Norman Reedus, Joshua Jackson, and Kate Hudson. And they're in like a class where they decide to i don't know write like a thesis about how gossip spreads by starting like a rumor about an assault it's bad i won't i won't really get into it like i can see why it like was conceived as something that could be fun it's one of those movies that when you watch it you can actually see how the script made sense and how it got butchered on the way to the screen And the only reason I want to go ahead and make sure to give everyone a warning is because you see that cast and you also see like people in the supporting cast like Sharon Lawrence and Edward James Olmos and Eric Bogosian. And you're like, oh, maybe this sort of like sleazy 2000 movie is kind of fun. No, don't bother. Don't watch it. (laughs) Just just skip over it. Please don't watch Gossip. And this is coming from me, someone who... um, has a fascination let's say with james marston <laughs> what have you been watching brandon well like i said earlier my last couple weeks have been ruled by jazz fest because my neighborhood is just sort of overtaken by that every year so i went uh, out there with Brittany yesterday uh and we watched uh, melissa etheridge close out the festival in the blues tent and had a great time singing along with a thousand of my closest friends uh, <laughs> <laughs> to my window <laughs> Oh man, the acoustics of that, uh, you know, bouncing off the tent roof was very beautiful. Oh, good. But one of the things that happened during Jazz Fest was at the Broad, they played a digital restoration of a Les Blank film called I Went to the Dance from 1989. Ooh. 
So it seems like his family is kind of restoring his movies one at a time to sell at these like kind of upscale prices to university libraries. And that's kind of how they're keeping his work like up to date in format, which is great. Like it's a good thing that they're keeping his legacy alive. Um, And you can buy a personal copy for a reasonable price. It's just also, you know, you see like on their website, they're really pushing like the library copies. Ah, Okay. I was going to say like, it's good, but I feel like his movies are so like in his documentaries, they're so like enjoyable that I am always recommending Garlic because it's good as Tin Mothers to people. Like You have to see it. It's so good. It's so fun. I have not seen that one, but uh, I do watch Always for Pleasure oh, practically yes. every Mardi Gras to oh, get in the spirit. So good. It's the only movie I can say like captures New Orleans culture in like an authentic, oh, genuine, yes. exciting way. Uh-huh. And this one is a very similar documentary. I went to the dance but it is about Zydeco music and Cajun and Creole culture, which I know a little about, but have never really loved Zydeco. Like I'm so used to it being mixed with like cheese ball, like swamp pop as you're like walking down Decatur street out of every tourist shop. Yeah. It's just like not my music, you know, but I will say after going to a concert slash film screening, where Zydeco got the always for pleasure treatment um, where it's a lot of like, you know, history of the art form and, you know, kind of this like linear explanation of where it came from and what different styles it's been mixed in with over the years as like younger musicians, like will throw in a little like Beatles rock and roll or a little like new Orleans sixties R and B in there to like liven it up by the end of the movie. I was like, I get it. This is like very good music. It like kind of reprogrammed my brain so that the even the cheesy factor of it was like an endearing aspect of it and something that's dealt with very directly in the film. It is free on Canopy, speaking of library systems paying for stuff. Uh, and it is also, you know, available through their website. I think the version that's on Canopy is not this new restoration, which did look very beautiful. And you can rent that for like three or four bucks. But in the future, the same way I get ready for... Mardi Gras by watching Always for Pleasure. I can see getting ready for Jazz Fest watching I Went to the Dance. Or Festival International. Or just festival season in general. Like French Quarter Fest and Jazz Fest are like one after the other. Yeah. And like the city kind of squeezes in a lot of fests before it gets so brutally hot that a tourist wouldn't come here if you paid them. So I would just recommend that if uh, Zydeco is like a big cultural hump for you, like it's like hard to get into it. It's a really good explainer. That's also a fun time. Like like you were saying earlier, his movies are academically minded, but they're not dry. Like they're very fun and kind of messy in like a very like humanist way. Like mm-hmm. it's all it's almost as much about the people dancing on the dance floor as it is about the bands playing the, the songs you're hearing. And it reminded me a lot of growing up in Louisiana in the eighties and nineties. And I also went on a huge nostalgia trip. Somewhat prompted by Boomer last time talking about the Power Rangers once and always special. I did end up watching that, even though you warned us that it is terrible. Uh, yeah, I, I saw that you uh, wrote up a little bit about that. I'm, I'm interested in hearing more. I, I went on a spiral because of this, where I was watching that special and I realized that the actual Power Rangers show, which I did, you know, watch religiously as a child, like I would throw temper tantrums if someone changed the channel in the middle of it at my before school care. Most of that show was like actors bullshitting around in these like open fields 
<laughs> yes. And then yeah. inserts of, you know, actually professionally made Japanese footage uh, saving the day and uh, rescuing you from the boredom. Not that I wasn't electrified at the time, but, you know, it, it looks a little dinky in retrospect. You'll get no argument from me. <laughs> I realized that I was... Uh, I realized that I was more nostalgic, actually, for the Power Rangers, the movie, which like was this major event oh, yeah. when I was, was uh, a, a child. Deal. And everything in that movie gets this huge upgrade. Like, it's the first Power Rangers property that, like, doesn't recycle used footage. It, it, it is, like, actually trying to make professional Hollywood-grade version of that source material. And I'm watching the movie... At my age now, and looking at all these like nicer suits and uh, really dated CGI graphics, and like uh, just sort of the the bigness of it, like the first fifteen minutes are the Rangers skydiving and then rollerblading uh, in this like extreme sports showcase before they even get into fights, and it's just this really long sequence of like stuff that you would think was radically cool when you were nine years old in the theater, which I was. And uh, I was sitting there watching this, thinking of my parents having to sit through all this like babble about megazords and ninja <laughs> zords and morphological beings and uh, <laughs> Zordon's plans and you know all all this like absolute bullshit. And uh, I was just laughing at like how when you're nine, that stuff seems so important and cool and like mind blowing. And the more and more distance you get from it, it just becomes inane babble. And like how funny it is that now there's really no one left around to care the way that I did when I was that age. At least you wouldn't think so because they just did this Netflix special that's calling back to this exact inane bullshit. And what really blew my mind in this process was that this movie is not available to stream legally in any way. Like you either buy a used DVD copy from a million years ago, or you haven't already owned it like I do, or um, you're torrenting it for free. And I just thought it was so odd that there's all of this media now that is pushing people to be nostalgic for these movies that came out 20, 30 years ago, and you can't legally access them. Like they're just leaving the money on the table. So... I ran into friends at French Quarter Fest a few weeks ago who just saw that new Super Mario Brothers movie and they wanted to watch the 1993 one with Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo and that was not readily available. And then watching the Power Rangers movie, I went down this YouTube rabbit hole watching music videos from the British pop group Shampoo uh, who I'm using for the soundtrack of this episode <laughs> because they had these like kind of violent girl pop songs that came out like right before the Spice Girls hit big. And then that sent me on another tangent where I ended up watching Spice World to fall further down the spiral. And Spice World was not available to stream legally. And it's just so weird how much media is stoking this nostalgia and like making people get excited about things that came out when we were kids, but then not actually taking care of that property in any kind of repertory way where that stuff is actually at your fingertips besides YouTube clips. And I think the thing is that absolutely no one gives a shit. It's, it's a mental disease I have that I even care to go back and watch these things in their entirety instead of just watching the shampoo music videos for three minutes while I'm taking a shit, which I think is what a reasonable adult is supposed to do. 
but uh, I do think there's a disconnect between what we're told to be warmly nostalgic for versus what's actually out there and um, being taken care of. Because most things are just sort of being left in this distribution limbo where you can't even get to it if you want to. You are really, really great in this movie, man. You kick butt. Uh, and I love it. I have yeah, such good a for you. Now, had you done? A, were you always a stunt woman? Uh, you know what? When I first started in the movie business, I knew nothing about martial arts. I was a ballerina since I was like four years old, and I loved dancing. So you know, I danced my way around. And then when they said, "Would you like to do、um, an action movie?" I said, "Yes, let me get in there and kick some butt." So for this week's episode, I had everybody watch. Yes, madam. From 1985, it is a Hong Kong action movie that stars Michelle Yeoh and Cynthia Rothrock as two police officers, and they're chasing down a piece of evidence that's a like a microfilm of a forged contract to take down a gang boss. It's one of the first movies to be described as the genre girls with guns, which obviously is exactly what it sounds like—a bunch of action films with women. Shooting guns excessively, and generally are good fun. There's like two sets of protagonists in this movie, which is interesting to me. There's the police officers that eventually turn into vigilantes, Michelle Yeoh and Cynthia Rothrock, and there's also this trio of goofy thieves who have taken the names of medications: aspirin, Panadol, and Strepsils. I would say the police characters in this movie, as much as like I love dumb action movie heroes, can't get beaten by anyone. Uh, are cops, so they're kind of sketchy. Like Cynthia Rothrock is using torture like as an interrogation technique. Michelle Yeoh's character is out there like letting informants be in like grave danger, you know, just like regular cops, and. As a contrast, the thieves are just kind of weirdly harmless. They quote unquote have a code of honor. We we don't see a whole lot of that except for the fact that they're fairly harmless, and they've just seemed to have been like bumbling through life with mild tricks and silly disguises, and somehow these poor silly bastards just get wrapped up. <laughs> Into this weirdo plot by robbing a dead British guy who originally has the microfilm. I thought this movie was a lot of fun.、Uh, what did y'all think? I loved this. I had sort of the same issues where I'm like, wow, I'm not really enjoying this like police brutality、uh, of what I'm seeing. And also, I had a moment where I was like, are they really having Cynthia Rothrock show up and? Tell Michelle Yeoh that she's not professional enough because I don't enjoy that. Yeah. But you know, other than that, it was great. I really enjoyed the the trio of Goonish brothers. <laughs> Now this is a hot take. What?、Uh, that what I'm hearing from y'all saying like the the thieves are like either equally or like formidably entertaining. I think is like against the consensus that most people have with this film, which is like、what? the two women badass, the three thieves kind of you know. A waste of time, and should have focused more on the the two cops. I don't disagree that it should have focused more on the the cops. I liked the compare and contrast. Not the cops, the ladies, but yes. Like, and I think it's supposed to be a compare and contrast that like there's these kind of 
public men that need saving from these two strong ladies who are together, you know, like, they've got their act together, and then these button-bullying men are just kind of, like, in trouble constantly on the run for their lives. And, yeah, I think it's more of a contrast in that way, but also, you know, they add that humor element that's it's pretty fun. Not all the humor translates. Yeah. Like, some of it's pretty broad in a way that, like, really tested my patience, but some of it's excellent. Uh, and I would say especially... Choi Hark, who's a great director in his own right, playing the really wiry one who actually makes the counterfeit IDs and stuff, has some great gags in his Uh little workshop apartment. One of my favorites is these people come to kill him, and uh, he's like running away, which happens multiple times. That's not really narrowing it down. (laughs) But uh, is it the one where he's doing all of the like Mario uh, (laughs) in the mansion in the castle, like swinging around on the grates? That was fun, but the oh. the gag I'm particularly thinking of is the Wile E. Coyote one where he uh, someone grabs his collar and it's uh, a fake dummy version of him with dynamite in its face. Oh, that yes. So okay, yes. That happens so fast. I, I forgot about it until you just mentioned it again. There's so much going on in that yeah. scene. Yeah, and that's kind of the whole promise of this era of Hong Kong filmmaking is like they would figure out gags on the spot and they would take like days to film just like a three minute scene because they would like work every inch of the room and every object in the set design yes. to like come up with fun Looney Tune gags like that. And when it works, it's so exciting. Which is why I absolutely love these types of movies. Is it's just the environment is a character. Everything that can be a weapon will probably be a weapon. Everything that can be climbed on is going to get climbed on. If you see a pile of barrels, that pile of barrels is getting toppled into the street. No question. When an assassin is sitting across the table from his target, he could just shoot him with the silencer, but instead he shoves the silencer into an apple and then explodes the apple with his bullet. Did that help actually muffle that sound anymore? I don't know, but it looked cool, which I guess is kind of the point. I guess my big picture takeaway from this is like this era of filmmaking in Hong Kong was so wildly creative that like, This feels like a matter of routine to me. Like, it's like a pretty regular movie, especially when it's the three thieves. I was like, oh, this is just any Sammo Hung movie or any Jackie Chan comedy. But adding women as protagonists, as much as it sidelines them, is still like a pretty big shift for that. Because a lot of those guys were kind of chauvinists and were like, you know, the women are eye candy and they're prizes. They're not equal. And I think from this point on, especially when you have people as like believably violent and uh, sharp in their fight choreography as Rothrock and yo, like that changed and they kind of proved themselves to the boys club as the genre went on for, you know, maybe like a decade or two more before this uh, industry was sort of absorbed into mainland China, like propaganda filmmaking, which a lot of the people like Choi Harker still making today. Yeah. Throughout the movie, it's a bunch of men being like, oh, women, and, you know, and them getting punched in the face. So it's very literally, you know, that. And then proving that there's an audience that wants that is just, it's great. And even Rothrock's introduction is like, she's just a lady at the airport. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to be this big shock that this white woman, (laughs) who's just like, uh, you know, checking her her luggage, um, can kick ass the way that she does. And she is really exceptional to watch. And the amount of intricate choreography in every one of those fight scenes is like 
incredibly impressive yes. to the point where you can't forget individual gags. It just really does feel to me like, I don't know that I think this movie is necessarily like the best of this art form. It's just exemplary of how consistently great it was mm -hmm. like this micro industry was putting out like some of the best action movies ever made on like a week to week basis yeah. for about two decades. How familiar are y'all with Cynthia Rothrock, like as a performer and a martial artist? I'm most used to seeing her in out of context clips. What? Oh, like from undefeated. Um, I'm thinking of like her in a shopping mall, like going up and down scaffolding or I, I scenes from this movie. I've probably seen out of context on like Twitter or, you know, different movie groups. People just like post this clip of like her kicking ass for three minutes. Uh, I, don't, yeah. I don't know that I've ever actually watched a movie with her from start to end like this before. Oh, she's she's great in everything. And I have seen uh, every once in a while, they'll put a movie of hers on during Weird Wednesday because they are sort of like strange. Oh, I guess I just revealed that I'm in um, New Orleans. Aren't <laughs> I? No, um, uh, I think it was Writing Wrongs that I saw her in, but I'm not sure. Uh, at the most recent Weird Wednesday. I love her. I don't know if y'all are aware that like she used to be like the greatest martial artist in yeah. the world. <laughs> like she was world she was champion like multiple a times. Champion martial artist that then turned into an actress and was awesome. Yeah. She was like like the greatest martial artist in the world and she was like winning in men's competitions because they weren't like there were no women's divisions of many of the things that she was competing in where she was like world champion like five times between like uh, during the eighties, you know, she is like a martial arts master. And it's very funny that she can't learn Cantonese though. Yeah. <laughs> she's very clearly speaking English and it's dubbed over. Cause if you've ever watched a movie where she talks as herself, like, like I really love her and I don't mean this as an insult to her, but especially in the eighties and nineties, um, the person who's doing the voice acting for her is a better actress <laughs> than she is. I do think given all that, like Michelle Yeoh started as a beauty queen and a ballerina. They go to toe to toe yeah. in this. And she is, she is as impressive, you know, at least in the way that it's edited and filmed. Yeah. yeah. She kicks ass. And uh, I think she earned the respect of people like Jackie Chan, who like doubted her because of her being a tiny woman and, uh, you know, earned her place among the greats in the genre. Yeah. And, you know, now is an Oscar winner. So, and, you know, there are people that are nostalgic for this era of filmmaking and you watch like stuff like uh, John Wick or everything everywhere yeah. or polite society is in theaters now that are like calling back to this era of like Hong Kong action choreography. Cause it is like the best but I think it was like filmed more competently at this time. Um, no matter how tactile you try to make it now, the amount of quick edit cuts, but you can still clearly tell where every character is located yes. and what move they're making. And every one of those yeah. snippets is incredibly impressive yeah. editing. It's amazing. The movie wastes absolutely no time. Even when you are watching yeah, like kind of buffoonish bullshit. <laughs> It's still cutting between the bullshit so quickly that it's over before you know it. It's so fast. The gags and the moves and just every action sequence is like, yeah. I I guess to circle back on sort of like the, the thieves, I, I, I guess what I, I guess I just really enjoyed their subplot. I do agree that it should have been more about these two like battle ladies. 
And it is sort of a bummer that they don't really like that. They start out with conflict, which is so like tired and typical. Uh, and it's so long before they become like, you know, let's do a real cool unrehearsed secret hand slapping and then get to so work. Good. But I, I don't know. I really, I really enjoyed it. I loved every bit of it. I even liked the stuff where there were cutaways to the, uh, like Mr. Tin's like organization. I don't <laughs> think there was dog. like a wasted moment in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess I can see how people would be annoyed by it, but it didn't bother me at all. I found especially the forger brother, very endearing and, and not just because of his wacky um, Tex Avery coyote stuff, but just in general, I really enjoyed their like triple locked cash box uh, I don't really understand what was going on with them going to visit their like master in the hospital. Like maybe that could have been cut, but what I really found fascinating was this ending. Oh yeah. This is a very strange ending for yes. a movie where it almost makes it feel less copagandistic. Cause like the cops are useless. The cops are <laughs> well, useless. the cops are useless, but also like Cynthia and Michelle, like, you know, they are, beating prisoners and like letting them get uh letting their own like bait get beaten up and all of that shit mm-hmm. and then they decide well we're going to be renegade cops and it, it, yeah. <laughs> then they get arrested yeah. for what they've been up to it's a very you you don't see that kind of shit in like cobra or like anything where schwarzenegger or stallone or anybody like throws their badge on the desk you know they go out and they get it done and then they're the hero and that's where the movie ends whereas this movie ends with or you know they get their badge back if they yeah you know yeah and this the rogue cops get arrested by the real police the police are useless to put this like you know organized crime boss behind bars and the only way that it has a semi-happy ending is that, like, one of the comic relief characters murders the villain in cold blood. Yeah. Like, it's a very strange, it's a very strange ending for a movie that was, like, kind of not very serious for the most part. Also, that brutal, abrupt final shot that it freeze frames on mm-hmm. comes after the longest martial arts extravaganza in the film where yes. Cynthia Rothrock and Michelle Yeoh are just kicking ass for like minutes on end. And it, mm-hmm. it took them 30 days to film that final action crescendo. Oh, wow. I believe and it's it. like intricately choreographed. And then all of a sudden it ends in that one shot with the gun and then, you know, freeze frame to credits, maybe a couple, like here's what you just saw, like yeah. <laughs> montages at the end. But like, yeah, it, it's a very abrupt, like, well, here's how you actually handle justice instead of, like, relying on the legal system to do it for you. Um, I like the ending. Dubious morals, but it's pretty pretty good. Yeah, I don't, I don't like the conservative read of, like, uh, here's why you just take your gun to the mall in case something bad happens and you have to, like, save the day before the cops get there. But in the context of the movie, it works very well. Yeah. I do want to bring up this book I read last summer called Sex and Zen and a Bullet in the Head. From 1996, which was this sort of catalog of hard to find at the time Hong Kong action movies. And it was like a list of video stores where you can request this stuff and just sort of like plot descriptions and breakdowns of like the most important movies in the genre. And it's a great little encyclopedia. And when you read it, it's like hundreds and hundreds of titles. And it's like really impressive just how much there was out there and how like wildly creative it was. And I looked up Yes, Madam in the book, 
um, after we watched it, and it's only mentioned twice. Uh, there's this chapter early on called Nail Polished Fists, which was about the female warriors, uh, girls with guns, end of the genre. And uh, both of them, uh, Yo and Rothrock, have like a selected filmography listed. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read them both. Uh, for Michelle Yo, uh, like the significant titles they listed were Magnificent Warriors, Royal Warriors, Yes, Madam, Police Story 3 Super Cop, Project S, The Tai Chi Master, Butterfly and Sword, The Heroic Trio, and Wonder 7. And for Cynthia Rothrock, they listed Riding Wrongs, Yes, Madam, Shanghai Express, The Magic Crystal, Blonde Fury, and City Cops. Now, of all those titles, you know, Boomer just mentioned Riding Wrongs, but I've only seen The Heroic Trio and uh, this one. And it's incredible to me how deep that catalog is and like how as many movies as they cram into that nail polished fists chapter of the book that yes, madam didn't get its own paragraph blurb because there just was so much to cover in, you know, 30 pages of zine space. And now you have the criterion channel. And in the case of the heroic trio, the criterion collection, uh, putting out these like really beautiful scans of movies that a nerd in the nineties would have like, murdered to be able to access a shitty third-hand VHS yeah. tape to watch. Right. Yes, madam. And uh, we're just really in, like, a lucky time right now. As little as it seems like people care about pop culture ephemera from, from decades ago, I was just lamenting how hard it was to watch the Power Rangers and Spice World. Uh, movies that actually have, like, the Hollywood machine behind them. There are especially physical media um, restorations of schlock like this being treated as important art alongside stuff like Citizen Kane. Uh, and I really love that. Like, it's like my time to shine, finally. Uh, and I just feel very spoiled. Yeah, I think it's really funny, you know, <laughs> because obviously the Criterion Channel and Criterion in general, like, has this, like, pretty toity reputation, but then they're regularly having collections with, like, weird genre stuff and niche things and schlock. And it's like how we were kind of talking off mic about people who don't want to watch movies before the year they were born or people who don't watch movies from like a certain era and i just feel like right it's this weird reputation of like the staunch filmness that rightly comes from film bros for being the loudest mouths in the room but it's so sad because it's like a lot of these things are fun it's like shakespeare you know a lot of it's fun the Criterion channel in particular is being programmed as if it were a repertory theater in New York City or Los Angeles, mm-hmm. um, which is where this kind of stuff regularly gets screened. Like they'll have like a Michelle Yeoh week where they'll screen all of her movies like once, you know, some of the classics back to back. And if you don't live in New York, you know, you're shit out of luck. Yeah. But the Criterion channel has been collecting stuff like that recently so they have like the michelle yo kicks ass collection up there which has been up since everything everywhere had its like oscar story a few months ago mm-hmm. so now that that wave is over and whatever deals they struck for these individual movies are sort of like filtering out one at a time what you'll see is that like this week on twitter i noticed that um something like a dozen people i follow happen to watch yes madam this week <laughs> yeah whenever that happens it's usually for one of two reasons. It's either the most boring reason, which is that blank check the podcast covered a movie and now everyone's shitting their pants over it because it's being discussed in that forum. Or it's because 
a movie was just announced that it's leaving Criterion Channel at the end of the month, mm-hmm. which is the case for Yes, Madam, is that at the end of May, it will no longer be there. And I don't know what kind of distribution limbo it's going to go in at that time. But right now, it's in like a high quality on this platform that's fairly well affordable, uh, especially for the amount of like content you can't find anywhere else. It's definitely worth your money. Yeah. So yeah, I just feel very spoiled. And I, I do like how it does come from a genuine film fanaticism and appreciation that's not just... Uh, this is going to sound insulting, but I don't mean it this way. It's not just a tree of wood and clogs where it's like, yeah. <laughs> you know, take your medicine and you have to suffer for art to be important. I know. Like, like, there is like fun stuff mixed in there. That's, yeah. That's what I'm trying to say is like, it's really sad that I think people think, you know, foreign film and art movies. And it's like a lot of those things are fun. It's sad. It has that reputation. I was actually thinking about this, and I didn't even know if I was going to bring it up at all. But I, I was realizing the other day that, like, what you think of as like a eat your vegetables movie, and what I think of as an eat your vegetables movie are very different. Because even though I agree that, like, I can see a reading of that for Tree of Wooden Clogs, I like had this epiphanic moment last week where I was like, oh. For me, Kamikaze Hearts is like an Eat Your Vegetables movie, just because, like, and I know that you hate that idea. That's crazy to me, yeah. (laughs) I saw this tweet the other day about how um, people act like they're force-fed avant-garde literature from birth, from the way that they talk about what they were, quote-unquote, forced to, like, read or learn about whenever they were in high school, even though, like, we can barely... Even though right now literacy rates in this country are like back down to where they were during like the fucking reconstruction, like as if we can like we're barely teaching people to read in this country as if they're being forced to read like naked lunch, you know, on mass. Right. Yeah. And there there is sort of an anti intellectual element to the way that people are socialized to think poorly of the art that they interact with in a learning environment. And for me, like for you, an artistic movie is one that's kind of like like a, an eat your vegetables movie is boring. It's it's, you know, oh, this is what art is. You have to, you know, ingest this to keep, you know, uh, an understanding of what art is alive. And for me, I usually feel that way about movies that I think are like kind of pretentious and try hardy, which I know like <laughs> Kamikaze Hearts is like a part documentary, part fiction. But for me, when I think about what like an artistic movie is, it's one that really tries to be edgy sometimes. And that's why, for me, it was a very eat-your-vegetables experience to watch Kamikaze Hearts, even though I don't feel that way about other things that are similar, like Knife and Heart, I think, is super fun. It's just there was something about Kamikaze Hearts that was very eat-your-vegetables to me. We can all have our popcorn and red vines with Michelle Yeoh, however. Yeah. No, that's like a universally entertaining picture. Yeah. Yes. Like I said, I, I think it's it's sad that we have this attitude. That's that's all I was saying. And especially because, you know, like you were saying, like there are people who would have killed to have their hands on this sort of movie. And I feel like it's a lot of people taking it for granted because of the heard like oh yes i watched this chinese action film on the criterion channel and be like uh of course you did and it's like i don't know it was fun i'd want to drill down on this kamikaze hearts idea a little bit okay okay 
I don't think that it's that different from this style of filmmaking. Because what I'm usually looking for is outsider art, mm-hmm. DIY, yeah. punk ethos. Which like, I'm going to figure it out on the fly. I'm going to use limited resources to make the most entertaining or like thought-provoking picture I can. And like punch above my weight class in terms of like production value. Yeah, you're going to Cynthia Rothrock this stuff. So like these movies were made cheaply and made routinely. Like they would like just knock them out. And, th- and I think there's a similar like DIY spirit in Kamikaze Hearts where it's just a few people with some camera equipment trying to make something happen on a few weekends of uh, time between, you know, the movies that actually paid their bills. And it's interesting because Boomer touched on the idea of it feeling pretentious, which I want to say, yeah, but it also knows it. It's like a very self-aware pretentious where it's like, we're the coolest people in the world. But at the same time, we are suffering, you know? And that's a very punk attitude to me, which I'm into, so. Yeah, and that becomes a movie about pretension. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess what you could say about the the goofball antics of the three thieves in this one is that there is no pretension in this movie's DNA whatsoever. (laughs) Like, this movie is basically three stooges half the time, and then, like, good cop, bad cop uh, the other half the time. I guess the disappointment most people feel in that split is, like, if this is the start of the girls with guns genre, that it would have been way cooler to see more of the girls in question uh, and not have them like have to share so much screen time with, you know, a comedic side plot that would have been like in an entirely different movie. Yeah. But I think that imperfection is actually part of its charm too. the sort of like lopsided quality of it where they were just like throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks yeah. is, you know, large part of what makes it endearing in the first place. So since y'all, if y'all are used to me going on about this sort of thing, uh, one thing I liked about this movie, because I feel like in a lot of movies starring women that are action movies, is it's a lot of hypersexualization in the costuming, but not in this one. Yeah, they're in big bulky eighties like jumpsuits and power suits and, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I was very into it. They have the uh, office lady version of the Kamikaze Hearts haircut. Yes. <laughs> it's like a more sensible mullet. Uh, and they both have the one. The so cute with it. <laughs> she really pulled off the 80s mullet. Every time she was on screen, I was like, oh, look at you. You're so young and you got that mullet and you look so good with that mullet. It's no wonder she was a beauty queen. I think she was like Miss Malaysia or something like that. Uh, yeah. Before she went into ballet. I think so, yeah. A couple notes about the fashion. I have one for both of them. Mm-hmm. Michelle Yeoh is supposed to be the more laid back, kind of like nice cop. Yeah. And like the way they try to make her look powerful but casual is they have her lo- wear these like loose, knotted up, button up dress shirts. Yes. So it's supposed to like look like kind of like laid back and like chill, but they all have these giant 80s shoulder pads to like project power, uh-huh. which is a really weird like push and pull. And then the uh, thing about Cynthia Rothrock that made me laugh was in her initial introduction when she has that fight at the airport, they have the most insane slit on her like power suit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like the slit up the side is all the way up to her hip uh, so that she can do those high kicks that are practically behind her own head. She planned for this. I guess that's like the most sexualized you could possibly say either of them are in the film is that you can see her entire leg from ankle to ass because uh, she is like kicking uh, vertically the guy that's like right behind her. And then, you know, like 40 minutes later in the movie, she's like in very frumpy, like 80s overall. So <laughs> cancels out. 
That kick where she kicks the face of the man standing behind her uh-huh. seems impossible. Like, I, I know that it has to be Cynthia Rothrock, because I know that she can do things like that, but it does come out of the bottom of the frame, and, like, her foot connects with that man's face, like it's a like it's a prop leg and, like, an SNL sketch. Like, it doesn't yeah. look like it should actually be physically possible. So it happens twice in the movie, and the first time at that airport, I was 100% convinced that was a mannequin leg, and I thought it was very funny. And then she does it a second time in the final fight. Uh-huh. I was like, well, I guess she could just do that. I know. <laughs> so many splits, and I was just like, ow. Like, the the scene where Michelle Yeoh lands on the piano on a split and crushes the guy's head under the cover of it. Like, where the strings oh, are. Oh, yeah. That. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> that pains me to look at. <laughs> I guess that's where the uh, they don't make them like they used to thing is like kind of a good thing because yeah. this movie does not k- take care of its workers. No. Guys are just like jumping off of a balcony and landing on their back on like staircases two floors down and um, there's no like protective layer or anything. And it's like when you ask them in interviews how they pulled these stunts off, it's like, no, that was actually me jumping off a train. That's uh, just what you we know. did. Yeah. <laughs> Samo Hung should be in jail for the things he asked me to do on camera. Yeah. Movies used to be so dangerous. Um, I mean, they still can be, but it used to be real bad. Every Jackie Chan picture from this era ends with a montage of him getting brutally injured on set. Yeah. Instead of like a uh, blooper reel. Yeah. I mean, I guess it is a the violent version of a blooper reel. <laughs> it but he's the like violent <laughs> version of a blooper reel. He's fucking up his stunts and like almost dying on camera. Yeah, and I mean, you know, everybody knows like the story about Buster Keaton breaking his neck on set and then continuing to film Ugh. like. It's very pro wrestling. It is. I was I was watching this and I was like, oh my God, this movie is so pro wrestling. I feel like Brandon's going to really appreciate some of this. I just watched a uh, WWE pay-per-view uh, that was in Puerto Rico this past weekend. And uh, the last match ended very abruptly because the main wrestler, uh, Brock Lesnar's face split open by mistake. Oh, and, uh, no. It got very bloody very fast and they had to cut the program short. Yeah. So... As choreographed as this stuff is, and even in the wrestling thing where they like plan it out and actually like practice it before mm-hmm. they film it, which I don't even think was always the case in these Hong Kong movies, there's still a real element that someone might die at any moment, which yes. does up the excitement factor, I guess. But uh, I don't feel particularly good about cheering that on. And uh, maybe it's for the best that they, they don't make them like they used to in this one specific way. Yeah. Like, obviously, people still do their own stunts on movies. Like, it's still happening. We all love practical effects, and it's kind of hard to straddle the line between like, oh yes, I want well choreographed fight scenes, but I also don't want anyone to get hurt. And yeah, it's it's hard to straddle that line. It's a fine line to tread between making things not just totally digital and having actual stunts. But, you know, then we have things like RRR that Clearly, so much of it is digital, and it still looks great. So, you know, maybe the answer is out there. I don't know. I want to say that India's, um, especially South India's, like, action filmmaking is, to me now, what this was in the 90s and 80s. Yeah. Like, the best action movies in the world right now are coming out of India, but not because they're pushing the physical stunts in this way. They're pushing more the CGI extravagance Mm -hmm. that, you know, has been 
sort of made the standard by, you know, Marvel and Fast and Furious and whatever else are like the major action franchises in Hollywood right now. I guess Tom Cruise is still holding on to the tactile stunts, but most of it is CGI heavy now. Uh, so South Indian, Telugu and Tamil industries are really pushing that stuff to its most absurd over the top extreme the way that like Hong Kong movies were pushing the tactile fight choreography to its most absurd over the top extreme uh, when we were children. Yeah. So like since Hong Kong as an independent industry is no longer the forefront of exciting creative action filmmaking, because it has to be in service of this larger mainstream production machine. India has that more volatile, anything can happen feel in its action films right now. And I think about that a lot, like how at the time this came out, there really was this huge fandom of, you know, if no, if nothing else, like the video store clerks, like Quentin Tarantino and you know, that era yeah. of like Gen X movie nerds were like worshiping this stuff. And it's like before RRR and even so far after RRR, there aren't that many, at least American fans that are actually going to see those Indian movies on the big screen, even though they're just as fun and, and exciting. Yeah. I think in general, outside of the few like major mainstream action franchises like Fast and Furious, there just isn't like a inherent fandom for action the way there is for sci-fi and horror. Where like yeah. for sci-fi and horror, there is a built-in audience that will show up no matter what movie it is in that genre. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like action gets that same fanfare. Yeah. Anyway, this movie rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this movie is great. It's a lot of fun, and now I just want to watch all of the movies that Criterion has up, and I guess I have to before the end of the month. I don't know that they'll all disappear at the same time. I do know that when they announce at the start of the month what's coming to the channel, they also announce what's leaving. And that's when you'll see everyone watching the same thing at the same time, is like scrambling <laughs> yeah. to like pick up the pieces and you know catch Yes Madam before... Who knows if it will be available commercially in any way at all at home next month. Mm-hmm. That stuff changes so quickly. And, I mean, we've talked about it before, but this is one of the good parts of everything everywhere all at once. Because, you know, Michelle Yeoh, she was in so many of these these movies. And obviously people want to see them. So I think they will get probably better distribution afterwards because there's an Oscar winner in them. And they're fun action movies i can cross my fingers right (laughs) that more people be able to see it. she has been around for so long and she has done so many different kinds of things and like the best aspect of that movie for all it's like kind of zaniness and like lol so random like visual humor the best aspect of it was here is everything michelle yo can do in like one package and it, it really is like overwhelming and like impressive she just really shines. Yeah. I guess Cynthia Rothrock has not gotten that uh, showcase in the same way, even though she is still around and giving interviews about, I, I notice on YouTube, there's a lot of like roundups of her talking about uh, individual movies and she'll like kind of like break down what the filming of them was like and what was going on behind the scenes. She, she's still out there and willing to like talk, get her, her Oscar. I, I mean, she was, she was a world champion. You know, she got her awards. Yeah, she she got her belts. She got her trophies. You know, maybe uh, people will watch more of her movies after hearing this, because I know we have such a far and deep reach into uh, the American consciousness. (laughs) But uh, 
Yeah. Well, next week on the show, we're not talking about people who have deep catalogs of art that you can check out. We're talking about one-and-done directors. We're talking about filmmakers who may work in the industry in other aspects, um, you know, actors, production designers, that kind of thing, but got to direct one feature film in their lifetime uh, and then called the quits afterwards. And we're starting with a, another return to the Czech New Wave. We're watching this movie called The Murder of Mr. Devil, which was directed by this uh, set and costume designer who worked on like movies like Daisies and Valerie and a Week of Wonders, like a lot of like really oh, lushly designed um, Czech New Wave classics. She directed one movie, and you can see her aesthetic carry over to that. And that is available for free on YouTube and also streaming on the Criterion channel, which uh, I guess this podcast is just turning into what's on Criterion this month, uh, which I'm totally fine with. I don't want to be a bad-